Alrighty, good morning, Imago Day. Like Tony said, my name is Devin. I am one of the pastors. And if you've never heard me preach before at Imago Day, this is because this is my first time here at Imago Day, that is. And so we got a new preacher, a new year, a new testament, as Tony said, but thankfully we have the same God. So uh, hopefully we can't mess up too bad today. So let's get into it. We're going to be in Luke 18 today. And Luke is going to give us two stories that you've just heard that contrast with one another. And I, I have grouped them together under the question of who can see? Who can really see? Uh, I'm not sure if you're like me or if you know someone like me, but a lot of times somebody may point something out to me, a person, an animal, or anything, and I cannot see it at all. Um, somebody may say, hey, look, there's Adam. And I'm like, where? They're like, just right, right there. I'm like, on the left? Like, no, on the right. In the tree? What, wait, in the tree? What are you talking about? No, he's in the building. And, and eventually it might go so long it'll get uncomfortable, and I'll just be like, oh, yeah, 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 I saw him. And, and I didn't really see him. Well, well, Luke, he gives us two stories about people who can really see. And the question for us is, do we see? Do we see Jesus? Do we understand who he is? Because the disciples, they see Jesus, and they hear his words, but they don't really see, they don't really understand. But yet a blind man, he can't see, and yet he sees Jesus better than anyone. So today, we are going to have two points, um, but because it's Imago Day, we'll have three points with those two points, but we'll get done really quickly. <laughs> so we're going to have, the first point is going to be today is the disciples who heard but did not see, and the blind man who saw the sun. So just as a reminder of where we left off in the series of Luke, Luke has told us in chapter 9 that Jesus has set his face towards Jerusalem. He is on his way there. And as he has traveled, he has predicted to his disciples twice already that he is going to die and then rise again. And now this is the third time that he's doing that. And each of these times they, that Jesus predicts his death and resurrection, they're accompanied with a miracle. And this miracle is going to show the power that accompanies the words that he says. And so Jesus, he's in Jericho, which is about 18 miles from Jerusalem, and he takes his disciples aside for the third time, and he predicts his death. So let's see what he says here in, chap in chapter 18, verse 31. He says, And taking the twelve, he said to them, See, we are going to Jerusalem. And everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. And so what did the disciples hear but not really see? So in this first verse here, it tells us that they heard Jesus' mission. They heard his mission, but they didn't understand it. Notice here, Jesus tells his disciples they're going to Jerusalem so that something will be accomplished, right? Jesus is not wandering around the desert. He is not wandering aimlessly. He's walking purposefully. Right? He's on a mission that needs to be accomplished, Luke says. It's a task that needs to be finished. Right? This is no ordinary mission. Jesus is not going to Jerusalem to buy milk. Right? He is doing something far greater. And what does he say here that he's going to do? Jesus says that his mission will fulfill everything that is written by the prophets, by which Jesus means the entire Old Testament. So because later in Luke, when Jesus repeats these words, he says that everything he will accomplish will be written in the scriptures. And he says that everything, what he, everything that will be accomplished will be written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms. And so Jesus is saying that their trip to Jerusalem has something to do with accomplishing the entire Old Testament. And notice what else he says here. He says that this mission is about the Son of Man, which is how Jesus refers to himself so many times in Luke. 
And so Jesus is making a very bold, a very dangerous, and, and very outrageous claim. He's just told his disciples that they are going to Jerusalem so that everything written about him in the Bible will be accomplished. Right? This is a huge claim. Like when I go on vacation, the most that I can accomplish is maybe reading one book. Right? Jesus is saying that when his travels are, are, are finished, he is going to finish the most important book that's ever been written. Right? This is huge. This is outrageous. Nobody should ever claim that this is what they're going to do on their, on their trips. And so, so, but what mission, though? What mission did the disciples hear that Jesus must accomplish? You know, they may be feeling pretty important. They're like, wow, this is, a, this is pretty big. They might be feeling great about themselves. Maybe they should start arguing about who's the greatest, which is actually what happens in the other Gospels. They start arguing, which kind of makes sense. They, they see a big mission. They're like, we're a part of this. This is something big. Um, and notice here what Jesus says, what the mission is. Jesus' death and resurrection. He says in verse 32, 4, which is the reason why the prophets will be accomplished, he, that's Jesus, the Son of Man, will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him, and on the third day he will rise again. So Jesus tells them that his mission is to be humiliated, tortured, and killed, which is nowhere near what the disciples would expect. The disciples, they expected Jesus to march into Jerusalem like a conquering king, not be dragged through it like a captured animal, right? This is completely goes against everything that they know about the Messiah in the Bible, in the Old Testament. And Jesus, they're thinking, should know this, right? He's already quoted Isaiah 11. Look here what it says in Isaiah 11, which Jesus said this was about him. This was fulfilled in their hearing when he read it. He says, but with righteousness, he who's the Messiah shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips, he shall kill the wicked. So Jesus' disciples would be thinking, did you forget that, Jesus? Have you actually read your Bible? You see, the Messiah is supposed to be praised, not mocked. The Messiah is supposed to have people bow down to them, not have people insult him, right? The Messiah is supposed to have somebody kiss his feet, not spit in his face. The Messiah is supposed to kill the wicked, not let them kill you. Jesus do you know what you're doing? Jesus, have you even understood your own mission? See, Jesus' words are so counterintuitive to what the disciples expected that Peter, in Matthew's gospel, tells us, Peter actually rebuked Jesus. Like, Jesus, this can't happen. Jesus, the hero is not supposed to die. Have you seen a movie recently, Jesus? This is not supposed to be what happens in any good movie. The hero is supposed to win. And Jesus is saying, telling them, that's actually the mission. The mission is what he sees better than anybody else. That mission is that Jesus is going to come and die for us. So notice what Jesus, he quoted Isaiah 11 about the Christ coming in power, but he also quotes something else about the Christ suffering for his people. Later in Luke, Jesus will quote Isaiah 53 about Isaiah's suffering servant, whom Jesus takes the identity of. And here's what he says, because he, this is in Isaiah 53, 12, he, the, suffer, the servant in Isaiah, poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. But why would he do that? Why would he pour out his soul to death? Why, why should not Jesus go ahead and come in power? The answer is that he's thinking of you. 
He's thinking of us. Because notice what the next verse says. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. See, Jesus knew. Jesus saw the plan. He knew that if he came to destroy the wicked the first time, we wouldn't have any hope. See, we are the wicked. Because of our sin, we have rebelled against God. And so Jesus, seeing that we needed grace and mercy, he comes to be killed so that we could be saved. If he didn't do that, we would not be saved. So when Jesus later, I don't have this text on the screen, but when he speaks about his death against the disciples after he's raised from the dead, listen to what he says here. He says, It is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations. So Jesus, as the true Israel, will suffer for his people and bear his sins. That's the mission. And if, if you're new to Christianity or if you're new here to Imago Day, we can't miss that point right there. That the Bible is not just some book of things that you should do. It does tell us how we should live. But more importantly, the Bible is a book about what Jesus has accomplished. The Bible is a book about what Jesus has done for you. How Jesus, as the suffering servant, took your sin and has given you salvation. And notice, notice how this passage is very grim. This passage is very dark. But notice what Jesus kind of tucks in there, right? He says, on the third day, he will rise. So the Pharisees may be writing wounds on Jesus' body now, but Jesus is going to erase them all at the tomb a couple of days later, right? The Pharisees may think they're winning right now, but Jesus says, there's overtime now. I'm coming back, right? I'm going to rise from the again, and I'm going to win. Even if you can't see that, I see the plan better than anybody because I created the plan, right? I created it so that you could be saved. And so this is the message of the gospel, that Jesus will suffer, right? But that suffering is for our salvation. That Jesus will die now so that way when he rises, we will rise with him. And Jesus is going to lose now so that way when he wins, we win with him. See, this is a plan unlike anything we could have ever dreamed of, that the most perfect son of God would come to the world, would live and die for us, so that way we, who never lived in, with any ounce of righteousness, of pure righteousness, of pure holiness, we could be saved and forgiven of all of our sin. That's the message of the gospel. That's the whole reason Jesus came. And so I just want to pause for you. If, if that is not what you believe, if that is not the reason you're here today, that you believe that Christ has died for you, and that's where your full trust is, I just want to encourage you, have faith in him today. Come to him today and ask him to forgive you today. You see, the disciples, though, they don't understand. Uh, they don't understand what Jesus' words are saying. And so one author says that Jesus' words are so totally outside anything they have could have imagined, wanted, dreamed, or pondered. Right? Luke tells us twice they understood none of these things, and they did not grasp what he was saying. But Luke, he actually tells us another reason why they did not understand. Notice what he says here. He says that his words were hidden from them. And Luke is the only author who says that Jesus' words were hidden from his disciples. And I don't think that that just means that they just really couldn't understand it. Right? I think that is part of it. Because that word hidden has some type of agency to it. You know, see, for me, if I, if I go in the pantry at my home and I can't find anything for some reason, I can never find anything, 
Um, it's different if my wife is hiding it, right? Which I think she is because I can't find it, but she can, right? Somehow it's always the way. But so it, it changes things if somebody's actually hiding something. But, and so for here, for Luke, his words are hidden from them. And so, but later in Luke, the reason I think that the, this is intentional, the reason I think there's actually, I think God is hiding something temporarily from the disciples. And I think that because later in Luke, Luke tells us that Jesus appeared to the disciples and that he opened their eyes to understand the scriptures. So listen, read with me in Luke 24, verses 44 through 46. He says, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was with you, that everything written about me, this is the same thing we've heard already, and the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And so he says, then in verse 45, he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. So he let them see fully what he's just accomplished. And he said to them, thus it is written, that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. So before Jesus' resurrection, the meaning is hidden. After Jesus' resurrection, the meaning is open to them. And so I think God is doing something in the disciples' lives where he's temporarily hiding the full mission of Jesus from them. But why? why? Why do that? Why even tell them now if he's hiding part of it? What's the whole purpose behind what he's doing here? And I think that there are... There's a lot of reasons, but I think there are three main reasons. Is one, it wasn't time for them to know yet. You see, God has his plan that he has been working out from Genesis. And the disciples are part of that plan, but it's really his plan. And it's not time for them to know. See, they have all these ideas about what the Messiah should do that we've just seen. And he's actually working against some of those ideas. That suffering comes before victory, right? So it's not time for them to know. And even if he told them, which he just did, They really can't understand. They can't grasp it. They need the resurrected Jesus to come and teach them and help them to understand. But why why tell them now? Why tell them now if he if they're just if it's gonna be hidden partially from them? And I think it's because so later, when he does appear, they will remember his words and they so they can believe. When the women go to the tomb and the angel says that he's not here, he's been risen, it says they remembered. They had faith so they knew that this was not accidental. This was purposeful, right? Jesus knew what was happening all along. They just now have eyes to see it later. And I think number three is that they needed to depend upon Jesus, right? They needed him. They should never leave and think that they know it, that they can go off without him. They need to constantly depend upon him. Earlier in Luke's gospel, when they don't understand Jesus' words, it says that they asked him what it meant. But here they don't do that. Earlier, it says the disciples were afraid to ask Jesus. And so I think that there's some implication that if they had asked Jesus, he may have told them more, but they're afraid. Jesus just told the rich man to give up all he had and give it to the poor. What's he about to ask of me? He just told him that his mission is to go and die. What's Jesus about to ask of me? And so there may be some fear among them as well. And I think this is so practical for us when we have in our lives, when we're thinking, what is God doing? When I don't understand what he's doing, what is he doing? What should I do when it just seems like it doesn't make any sense? And I think there's two things for us, is that when we don't understand what's going on, I think we remain humble. We are not God. I barely even, I don't even know how Wi-Fi works. How am I supposed to understand how God has crafted the whole universe and has this whole plan for my part in it, 
right? I don't think there's any possibility of me thinking I could grasp that, right? So I need to remain humble and trust that I'm not God, he is. And another author says this, that there is much that if we fully understood it, it might make us turn back and no longer wish to follow Jesus. There's so much in this world that might make us wish to turn back, and so we need to trust God in his plan. And the other thing is that, um, so we remain humble, and we also trust God when we don't understand what's going on. When it looks like the devil, darkness, and death are dominating, we remember that God is working. And I know that in this new year, this new year does not necessarily mean it's a whole new, a whole new me, a whole new season for some of you. And, and for some of you, it seems dark. It seems scary. It seems unknown. And it seems like we want to say, like, God, what are you doing? And I don't want to claim up here to think that I know what he's doing, but I know we know him, right? You may not know what he's doing in your life, but you know him. You know he's good. You know he's done all of this for your good. And how do we know that? Because he proved it with Jesus at the cross. When Jesus was at the cross, when he died and suffered and was mocked, the righteous king, right? He rose him from the dead and seated him at the right hand of power. And so we can trust when we don't know what's going on in our lives, we still know him. So even when, the, even when dark clouds are all around us, we know that the sun is still there. And that sun peeks through a little bit here in this next, in this next story. We see darkness in the first half of the disciples and misunderstanding. But in this next story, that sun starts breaking through. The kingdom starts breaking through now. So we have the blind man who saw the sun. So like I said, this miracle's placement in Luke is not accidental. Jesus has made this outrageous claim, and now this miracle is going to show that there's actually power to those words. So read with me again in verse 35. As he drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging, and hearing a crowd go by, he inquired what, he, what this meant. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. Pay attention to that. Jesus of Nazareth. Notice what he says, and he cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And those who were in front rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and commanded him to be brought to him. And when he came near, he asked him, what do you want me to do for you? And he said, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. So Mark tells us that this blind man's name is Bartimaeus, and there would have been lots of travel from Jericho to Jerusalem, so this blind man would have been sitting on the side of the road, hoping for pity from fellow travelers to spare some change, spare some money for him so he could provide for himself. See, a blind man in this day, he would have been poor, he can't work, he would have been, had low status, he would have been on the same status as somebody who was paralyzed, he would have been socially marginalized and ostracized from family and friends. He would have been considered unclean. He would have been possibly cursed by God. And so this blind man is alone on the side of the road without friendship, work, community, or any of the basic necessities of life. And Jesus passes by him. And what's so interesting is that blindness in the Bible is a symbol of unbelief. Yet here, the irony is that this man becomes the model of faith, right? Unlike the disciples who couldn't see what Jesus meant, this man sees Jesus actually better than anybody around him. And Jesus, so he not only turns upside down how people expected the kingdom of God to come, he actually turns upside down who actually can understand that kingdom of God coming. So the blind man. The blind man, he saw three important things. First, 
he saw the son of David. So this man, he can't see what's happening. He hears there's a commotion of people passing by, and he, cry, and he asks the crowd what's going on. So finally, somebody who's not afraid to ask what's going on. And he says, and they say, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. But notice what he does. He cries out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. But the crowd, they tell him, be quiet. Don't you know who this is? You need to calm down. But this man, like a parent at a Mago Day soccer game, he starts shouting louder, right? He says, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. He's thinking, I know exactly who this is. Do you? And so this blind man, he's actually the only person in Luke's gospel who calls Jesus the son of David. And this title is significant because it reminds us back to what Jesus' mission is. So in Luke chapter 1, verse 31 through 33, uh, there was an angel talking to Mary, and the angel said, And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom there will be no end. And again, in Luke 2, 11, the angel said to the shepherds, For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. So Bartimaeus, when he calls Jesus the son of David, not Jesus of Nazareth, when he calls Jesus the son of David, he's claiming that this, he knows that this is the Messiah, that this is the one who has come to redeem Israel, who has come to save the world. And so he asks Jesus for mercy. And in Luke's gospel, only this blind man and the ten lepers actually call out to Jesus for mercy. See, the Pharisees, they saw the threat that Jesus posed to their, their social status and their power. And the rich man, they saw the obstacle that Jesus presented between him and his money. But this man, he sees the compassion that this Messiah has for the blind, the lame, the outsiders, and the sinners. He saw the son's compassion. Notice in verse 40, it says, And Jesus stopped. Jesus is on a mission to accomplish the Bible. Does he have time for one person? You know, we can, we can barely get a celebrity to stop for an autograph. How can we expect the Son of God to stop for just somebody on the side of the road? But does Jesus actually have time for one person? And the answer is yes, because that's his mission. His mission is to come for us, and he does not let his going to the cross actually get in the way of the actual mission, which is the people he's going to save. And so if you're here today, know that Jesus has time for you. Your sicknesses, Jesus has time for. Your stresses and anxieties, Jesus has time for. Your worries, your needs, Jesus has time for. And so if anyone even if yourself starts questioning, should I call out to God? Does he care? Does he, is he going to actually hear me? If anyone starts doing that, you start shouting louder, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Please come to me in my need. That's what this blind man is doing, and that's the example he sets for us, to call out to God in our time of need. He will stop for you. He hears your prayers. So call out to God for mercy. Third, the blind man, he saw the son's power. Notice Jesus says, what do you want me to do for you? Which is an outrageous question. He says, Lord, let me recover my sight. 
And Jesus said to him, Recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him, glorifying God. You see, compassion without power doesn't help anyone. And this blind man, his appeal to Jesus' compassion is rooted in his belief that Jesus can actually help him, that Jesus actually has something he can do for him. And when Jesus says, what do you want me to do for you? It would have not been unreasonable for the blind man to ask for money, right? That's what he's asking from everyone else. He's asking for a little compassion and a little help. Maybe, I mean, it's Jesus. Maybe he could have asked for a year's worth of income. He, he could have asked us for something big. But this blind man, he does not stop at his temporary status as poor. He does not stop and ask for wealth. He asks for something far greater. He asks Jesus to give him his sight back. See, he not only understands that Jesus, who he is as the son of David, he not only believes that Jesus has compassion on him, he believes that Jesus actually has the power to fix his, his current status, to fix his current problem. And Jesus, he answers his faith with healing. He says, recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. So look at the great reversal that has just happened for this man. The blind man can now see, right? The man begging for money on the side of the road is now praising God for his mercy. The man who is sitting alone is now following Jesus in the crowd. The man who is the object of the crowd's rebuke is now the reason for their praise. And the outcast is now the model of faith. This is, this is the gospel and such a condensed story. See, Jesus, God, he takes our shame and he gives us honor. God takes outsiders to his kingdom and he makes them insiders, citizens, inheritors of his, of his glory, of his, of his good name. And Jesus fills our need with his abundance. See, the gospel is about all that Jesus has accomplished for us, done for us, and given to us. And all that is required of us is that we call out to him for mercy. That we say, God, please fill my need. So two applications as, as we close. Um, first is that Jesus here, Jesus' mission is to the vulnerable and to bring physical healing now, right? If Jesus only wanted to save our spirit, right, he wouldn't have stopped for the blind man on the way to the cross, right? But the fact that Jesus stopped for the blind man, he's coming to show that he is fixing all that is broken in the world, Right? He is saving us from our sins, but he is going to make all things new. And this, and this healing of the blind man is a taste of what is about to come. It is an inbreaking of the lights through the dark clouds, through the darkness, and showing what God's mercy is about to do. And we have not seen all of that yet, but this is part of his mission. And so if we as the church, if we want to look like Jesus, we need to have a compassion for the weak, for the vulnerable, for the outcasts, for the needy, a compassion that comes and that works powerfully for them so we can point to what Jesus has done, so we can point to what Jesus will do one day. And so as a church, as you join back with your growth groups in the new year, uh, be thinking, how, what are we, how are we going to look like Jesus in the way that he loves those who are outcasts from society? How are we going to look like Jesus and the way that we come to help and point to what he will do one day. So we, we are not going to fix the world. We just point to the way he's going to fix it later on. He's our ultimate hope. We are not the Messiah. He is, but that means now 
we work to point to the good hope that we know is coming in Christ. Number two, uh, for the second application, this, blind, this man's blindness points us to our own problem and our own solution as well. See, this man was born physically blind, and he asked Jesus for, to receive his sight back. But see, all of us, we are born spiritually blind. We do not see God as he is. We do not worship him as we ought. We do not obey him as we ought. Sin has blinded us and kept us from God. And so like this man, we need Jesus to forgive us. We need his mercy. And the good news, as I've already said, is that's his mission. So if you're here today, please hear Jesus asking you this question. What do you want me to do for you? Jesus is asking you today, what do you want me to do for you? And you know what? We, anything that you could imagine as far as your need, when you think of yourself as a sinner before God, he can meet. Notice what um, I think Charles Spurgeon, he sums it up well. He says, sum up all that the sinner wants, all that the sinner wants, and you will find him able to supply you with all. You want pardon? It is delivered unto Christ of the Father. You want change of heart? It is delivered unto Christ of the Father. You want righteousness in which you may be accepted? Christ has it. You want to be purged from the love of sin? Christ can do it. Anything that you need today, Christ is offering to you. Full forgiveness, full pardon, full righteousness, full acceptance before God. Somebody who's in control of your life and has his good plan to work and make all things new, Christ is offering it today. Only the, the, the response for us is to say, Jesus, is to ask him for it. It's to have, ask him to have mercy on you, to ask him to have compassion on you. And you know what? He will stop for you and he will do it. He will have mercy on you today. He will have compassion on you today. That's his mission. His mission is for you. So trust him today. Know that he's good. Know that his compassion will work powerfully for you. Let's pray. Uh, Father, thank you for, uh, thank you for coming. Thank you for, Lord, we could not thank you enough for your mission for dying for us, for working for us. So, Father, Lord, I ask that today, uh, Lord, that we would hear you, um, we would see you as you are, we would know you as our God and our Savior, Lord, that we would um, call out to you for mercy, that we would call out to you for forgiveness of sins. Lord, if there is anybody in this room who does not know you, who does not see, Lord, we ask that you would give them eyes to see. Help us in 2023, Lord, to see you better to know you better, to trust you more. And we ask that you would do this and work in our lives. Thank you for your good plan. Amen.